Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning on this 1st of July, 2021. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. I am Carmen LaBerge. Yesterday's uh, news cycle, at least in the afternoon and evening, was um, was dominated by a surprise out of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. So the Pennsylvania Supreme Court yesterday overturned uh, Bill Cosby's conviction for sexual assault, and he was uh, released from prison. And so I think that it is um, it's something that is being widely and openly talked about in the culture. And so I think we should prepare ourselves to enter into the discussion. The state Supreme Court in the state of Pennsylvania concluded that the prosecution of Bill Cosby should not have occurred due to a deal that um, that he cut with former Montgomery County prosecutor Bruce Castor. So. There was a prosecutor who agreed not to criminally prosecute Bill Cosby if he gave a deposition in a civil case that was brought against him by uh, Andrea uh, Constand. Later in 2015, a a subsequent or a successor prosecutor named Kevin Steele decided that um, even though uh, his predecessor, Bruce Castor, had made this deal with Bill Cosby, um, that the comedian still needed to be prosecuted criminally for having drugged and raped Andrea Constant. And so that resulted in uh, Bill Cosby's conviction and subsequent prison sentence. So while the decision of the court in this case is is technically accurate, nobody seems to be arguing that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decided in any way other than rightly in this particular case, um, that it was unusual and extraordinary and beyond the bounds of what the Constitution allows for Bill Cosby to have been criminally prosecuted after having made a deal with a prosecutor that he wouldn't be criminally prosecuted, and then for um, for five women to be allowed to testify um, to experiences that they had many years earlier with Bill Cosby that certainly showed a pattern of behavior, um, but were technically not relevant and should not have been admissible in the Andrea Constand case. So that's what's, um, that was the discussion. Um, That was the result. Cosby was convicted through a process that the court found denied him of rights that are guaranteed by the Constitution to everyone. However, it in no way, in no way should be seen as a vindication. Uh, Andrea Constand was not alone in her credible allegations against Bill Cosby. He drugged and raped these women, lots of them, um, and he remains defiantly unrepentant. And so while, while like everyone under the U.S. Constitution, he deserves uh, the benefit of the law, 
he he's almost certainly guilty of the crimes uh, of which he is accused. And so I think that when we talk about justice as believers, we have to keep the reality of justice in mind. And unrepentant um, people need to be in our prayers. Um, justice is coming. It may not come in this world as we desire or expect, um, but justice is coming. God actually guarantees it. God can't help himself but be but be just. And so um, my prayers are arising today um, for an awakening of a repentant spirit. All right, things that you can expect to dominate the news cycle today. President Joe Biden is going to visit the condominium collapse site in Surfside, Florida. Um, search, uh, search for survivors enters a second week today. I think that um, it's probably time to begin talking about sober realities. Uh, New York prosecutors are expected to announce the first criminal indictment in their investigation into Donald Trump's business practices uh, and his longtime chief uh, of tax, um, his CFO, is the person who is ultimately going to be targeted in this. Today is the day that college athletes can begin legally making money from their name, image, and likeness. The NCAA Board of Governors has approved an interim policy giving student athletes in all three divisions the ability to profit from sponsorship opportunities and advertising following the ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court that uh, and the changes in laws in several states, which go into effect today. All right. And as the Supreme Court concludes its term, there are lots of people watching to see if Justice Stephen Breyer, who is 82, may in fact announce plans to retire. So those are the things I expect to be dominating the news cycle today. Ben Johnson is waiting in the wings. He's a media reporter for Daily Wire. He also tweets at the Rights Writer. We're going to talk with him about fact checking. Who's actually checking the facts and who's checking the fact checkers? Yep, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Ben Johnson joins me now. He's a media reporter at The Daily Wire. You can find what we're talking about today at dailywire.com. You can also find Ben on Twitter at The Rights Writer. Ben, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. Good to speak with you. Good morning, likewise. All right. Uh, fact checking, fact checkers, and who who does the checking and who checks the checkers? Yeah, it's, it, it sounds like how many, uh, how much wood would a woodchuck chuck, but uh, <laughs> Yeah, it, it's an incredibly important discussion for us to have because, uh, any, of course, anyone who's on social media knows that uh, half of what they want to look at is covered up usually uh, in some kind of a fact check. And there's a reason for that, uh, particularly if you, are, if you are on the right. There are a whole series of fact checkers who are coming with a political agenda. Politico.com had a story about this uh, just last week where the Biden administration – has three teams, at least three teams of paid people whose job it is to troll through uh, through social media, look for what they call misinformation or disinformation, which is to say information that uh, makes the Biden administration look bad, and then either get it fact-checked or uh, attack the person who is posting it uh, and speak in some way there. So they're either presenting the administration's talking points or they are trying to get, say, Facebook, Twitter to do a fact check on it so it will be covered up and not shareable 
uh, were not as accessible, and then ultimately have that pulled down from the platform. Now, some of the things that they talk about when they're talking about uh, misinformation, uh, you know, they, they're not simply talking about, uh, for example, uh, things that everyone would agree on, but these are things from a highly partisan point of view, uh, and anything that disagrees with that point of view uh, will be fact-checked and taken down. Uh, now, not only is that concerning a little bit that you have the U.S. government uh, and our tax dollars being used to fact-check us from uh, the administration's point of view, uh, you know, so we're, we're essentially paying to be fact-checked or censored. Uh, that's that's concerning in itself. Of course, there's no constitutional authorization for this in the in the Constitution. The founding fathers had no idea of this. Uh, they allowed for a very robust debate at the beginning of our republic. But then, uh, when you look at the people who are doing this, one of the teams that's uh, involved in this, it, it's not officially involved with the Biden campaign, but it's highly uh, involved uh, in terms of uh, its personnel. Uh, they are very much connected with the campaign. There's a group called Building Back Better, uh, Building Back Together, I should say, BBT. And the uh, the head of that group is a man named Robert Bauer. His wife works in the administration, uh, Anita Dunn. She's a special uh, advisor to Biden. Stephanie Cutter is also involved. If those names sound a little bit familiar to people who are really politically nerdy like myself, uh, they helped run the 2012 Obama campaign. Stephanie Cutter uh, was one of the people who went out publicly and said that Mitt Romney was probably guilty of a felony and that he made a woman with cancer die because he closed down the plant that was employing her husband who had the health insurance. Uh, all these things were fact-checked. They were all incorrect. Uh, you know, Mitt Romney did not commit a felony. Uh, she was she was basing this on a, an, an incredibly uh, twisted interpretation of something that he had said that she had to almost know was false. Uh, Bauer was involved in the production of the Steele dossier, which had a lot of misinformation about uh, our, our last president. And the idea that uh, this woman died because of Mitt Romney, uh, the, the plant was shut down seven years after he left the firm that closed down the plant. So he had nothing to do with it in any way, shape or form. And she had her own insurance. But these are the people who are doing the fact checking on what you post on Facebook or Twitter. So it's it's highly concerning. You know, I appreciate that you dig around in these kinds of things. Um, I think that the challenge that we face constantly in the culture is who to believe, whom to believe. And um, it is frustrating when the people who are checking the facts are n not just biased, but have a history of lying to us. And so that is really, um, that is frustrating. And so, you know, thank you for Thank you for speaking the truth about people who are supposed to be telling us the truth about what is and isn't truthful um, when their own truthfulness <clears throat> or relationship to the truth is um, certainly historically questionable. All right, let's take a very, very brief break, and then let's come back and talk about um, the fact that, well, we don't trust the media, and maybe this is a part of why we don't trust the media. That's my next conversation with Ben Johnson. We'll be right back. All right, continuing my conversation now with Ben Johnson. He is a media reporter for The Daily Wire. Um, ben, let's talk about the lack of trust that Americans have in the media and why um, why that lack of trust exists. Yeah, there was a global study from uh, Reuters. Of course, a lot of people will recognize that from reading the newspaper, reading online. It's a global uh, service like the Associated Press. 
They've done a study of 46 nations, and the United States ranks dead last in terms of trust in the media. Uh, of all of the nations in the world, we trust the, le the media the very least to give us uh, the information and the facts that we believe. So 44% of Americans say they don't trust the media to report the facts when they read this. Uh, more people dis distrust the media uh, than, uh, than trust the uh, media. And of course, uh, almost as many strongly disagree that the media is being factual than agree that it's being factual. Uh, there is, of course, a, a partisan difference here, which is that uh, those on the left, a slight majority of people on the left tend to believe the media. Uh, the vast majority of people who identify as being on the right, uh, three out of four, say that the media is biased. So there, there is a difference here. And I think that we may have hit on some of the reasons why that is, uh, which is, of course, what we were talking about in the last segment about the fact checking coming, uh, in this case, from the administration. Uh, also from uh, just the uh, the ideology that's being taught in journalism schools uh, and uh, the fact that journalists have to have just a very thin layer of, of knowledge about everything. Many of the people who go into journalism go there because they say they want to change the world. Uh, they don't go in order to report the facts. They don't go in order to tell you what's happening at uh, your local school board or local uh, civic organization. They go in order to present their ideology in one way or another and uh, that's become clearer and clearer as time has gone on. There was a, a really disturbing quotation that I came across. Uh, this is from a group called the uh, Pointer Institute for Media Studies. Very few people have heard of that. It's very influential among journalists, but it's, uh, it's not an organization most people know about, but they may have heard of the group PolitiFact, which is one of these fact-checking organizations. PolitiFact is the daughter organization of Pointer. Uh, one of the people that they were interviewing did you ever wonder how words get changed? You know, they, they start out almost being introduced as a joke, and then the next thing you know, you see it in the media all the time. So like mother is replaced with birthing person, or whenever we read about people who are pro-life, it's inevitably anti-choice or anti-abortion, uh, but it's always pro-choice, never pro-abortion. You ever wonder how things like that get codified? She was talking, uh, there was an individual who was talking to the Pointer Institute, an editor, who said, Ultimately, from my experience as a copy editor, people just want to be told what to do. And 99.9% .9 of journalists are not going to argue with you about whether they can use a word. So we don't have to talk about it. We're just going to do it and make it normal. That's how words get changed in journalistic parlance. Someone comes up with the idea. They make it policy. They come fresh out of college with the indoctrination of secularism. They make that the dominant template that's going to be used and all of a sudden, you're reading the latest information uh, that is being shaped by the secularist ideology, and it forms the entire culture as a result. Yeah, I, um, you know, the manipulation of words and the way words are now mean things that they did not originally mean, or the way in which words are used in ways that, um, we would not understand at first blush, like, right, so you can get away with saying something because I don't exactly understand what you're saying because you're using terminology in ways that are different from the way that I'm used to hearing the word um, used. And and then new words are introduced and a meaning is attached to them. Um, and then we're all just expected to use that language. Uh, the substitution of pronouns that is now commonplace among journalists, their willingness to participate in uh, society-wide delusion 
um, that particular individuals are adopting identities that do not align with biological reality. And then we are all um, required to use those names and those pronouns, um, which forces us all to participate in the equivalence of a lie. And it's a real challenge because if we don't participate, then we lose the opportunity to continue to be platformed on in social media environments. And so, I mean, it is it is a real challenge that we face every single day to be people of truth, to speak the truth in a culture that is not only dominated by misinformation, but then the the social media companies deplatform or cancel anyone who doesn't participate in whatever the most current version, uh, you know, of the language exercise is. Yes, and of course, I mean, it goes all the way back. I don't mean to be cliche ridden, but it goes all the way back to George Orwell. You know, how can you express yourself if you don't have the language to express the ideas that you think? And so uh, everything has been changed. The language itself and the meaning of the words has been changed and it's been sanitized. Uh, it has been ideologized, for lack of a better word. Uh, and, and Orwell wrote uh, this beautiful essay on uh, politics and the English language a long time ago. He said, the English language becomes ugly and, and, and inaccurate because our thoughts are foolish. But the slovenliness of our language makes it easier for us to have foolish thoughts. So the less that we can speak precisely, the less that we can speak accurately, the easier it is for us uh, to be to be uh, removed from reality and uh, for us to be pushed along with an agenda. And I think these two things go together so well. I think that's one of the reasons that people are so willing and uh, able to trust Faith Radio Network, uh, shows like yours, uh, because there are people who are dedicated when uh, whenever it is that we speak about something, we're dedicated to speaking truthfully. They know that when you go on the air, uh, you are we are certainly coming from a, a perspective, a Christian perspective, unapologetically, and not in spite of that, but because we're Christians, we are dedicated to getting all the facts right, and we'll include nuance even if it happens to dis, uh, disagree or happens to be a stumbling block to our own perspective, uh, as as you were uh, doing at the top of the show with the Bill Cosby thing. Uh, it looks very much like there was he had a, a legal stratagem that he could employ in order to get out of prison. It it does very much look like uh, there was a due process issue. That does not mean that he's innocent. It does not mean that he shouldn't be in prison. It simply means that uh, there was uh, a, an issue there. And so it's reported in full in all of its warts because people are willing uh, to believe you, they should be willing to believe you because when you go on the air, you are dedicated to giving them the facts and giving them uh, also a Christian interpretation of those facts when you go on. But it begins in speaking the truth. The uh, the Pointer Institute, which for those of you who want to research it, P-O-Y-N-T-E-R, uh, for media studies, is a tax-exempt nonprofit organization. Uh, formed in 1976, originally by the Tampa Bay Times, but then acquired by PolitiFact. If you go to GuideStar um, and look at their information, the people related to um, the governance of this nonprofit make millions of dollars um, from, quote-unquote, related entities. So you can read their tax filings uh, right there online if you want to know more and you want to know more about the people involved um, and, you know, because they are shaping what uh, emerging generations of journalists think and how they how they operate and function, um, and they're also 
then influencing how we see the truth um, through their organization, PolitiFact. All right. So, Ben Johnson, as always, thank you so very much for joining us. We look forward to future conversations. Thank you. And uh, always good to talk with you. God bless. Likewise. That's Ben Johnson. You can find him at dailywire.com. We'll be right back. All right. July uh, 4th is very nearly upon us. So the Declaration of Independence will be center stage. Uh, We should all reread it. So we're going to talk in in the next half hour um, about the Declaration of Independence. And I'm going to note, I don't know, maybe a half a dozen or so things that you may not know about the Declaration of Independence. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I've always thought that parents need to spend less time trying to control their teens and more time helping them develop responsibility and maturity. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I've watched dads spend years trying to gain control of their teens and end up losing it anyway. In the process, they also lose their relationship with their kids. And I've seen moms so fearful that their kids might do something wrong that they develop an unhealthy attachment and they're unwilling to detach. In order for children to become healthy adults, they'll have to become independent from mom and dad. And parents have the power to build an environment where that's possible. So mom, dad, exercise your skill of letting go. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find helpful resources at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. So as we approach Independence Day, July the 4th, let me encourage everyone to actually reread, read again, read anew, maybe read for the first time, the Declaration of Independence. And let me encourage you to do that for a number of reasons. Um, First, it's important to actually pay attention to original documents, what they say, not what we think they say. Um, And it was the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States on July the 4th, 1776, when these things were stated. And I think that it's important to read them, um, to recognize the language of the day, the sentiment of the day, to acknowledge the people of the day, um, because we sometimes live far enough from the event that we think we know what it was about, and then sometimes we fail to actually read the documents upon which um, it was based. I feel the same way um, about the Bible. People read a lot of books about the Bible or listen to a lot of people talk about the Bible, but not enough people read the Bible itself. So here you go, uh, the Declaration of Independence. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. So that is the beginning of the Declaration of Independence. I've been reading um, historian Woody Holton, um, who talks about 
things about the Declaration of Independence and the time period that w- many of us didn't ever learn in school, things we don't often talk about. So we talk about the people who signed the Declaration of Independence, but we don't often talk about the influences that were pressing in upon the signatories of the, de- the Declaration of Independence. So um, one of the one of the points um, that um, that Holton makes is that ordinary Americans actually played a really big role in uh, in the Declaration of Independence, what it includes um, and and who signed it. So we know that the Continental Congress voted to separate from Britain on July the 2nd, 1776. But did you know that prior to that, 90, 90 provincial and local bodies, conventions, town meetings, grand juries across what was then, you know, the nation, which was just 13 colonies, um, 90 provincial and local bodies had already issued their own declarations or instructed um, those representing them in the Con- Continental Congress to do so. So we're talking here about um, lots of people gathered in lots of places and spaces spread across the 13 colonies who then in turn um, empowered and demanded that their representatives to the Continental Congress on July the 2nd, 1776, actually enter into declaring independence. And so um, in, in Maryland specifically, um, there were county conventions that were demanding that uh, Maryland's congressmen support independence. Pennsylvania assemblymen um, required their congressional delegates actually initially to oppose independence until the people of Philadelphia gathered outside the state house, um, that which we would now recognize as Independence Hall, threatening to overthrow their own state legislature um, if if they didn't move in the direction of independence. I'm just saying that like lots of regular ordinary Americans were involved in um what ended up in the Declaration of Independence and uh, the signatories to it. Um, Holden also acknowledges that American independence was due in part to African-Americans. Um, they were very involved in um, in the first draft written by Thomas Jefferson. And uh, like the U.S. Constitution, the final version of the Declaration of Independence never uses the word slave. And I think that that is notable. It is significant. Um, It does not remove the reality um, that enslaved Americans were um, a a horrendous part um, of our nation's history and formation. I don't deny that. I don't think anyone um, denies that. Uh, and, and in its earliest drafts, Jefferson's single biggest grievance um, with, with the mother country of Great Britain um, was the enslavement of Africans um, in attempting to incite uh, them against um, landowners, which obviously included uh, enslaved people here in the U.S. Like this was a challenge. Jefferson said that George III was encouraging enslaved Americans, quote, to purchase the liberty of which he was himself depriving them. Um, And I, I, you know, so I just recognize that in the conversation about the Declaration of Independence, no one was a respecter of 
um, of enslaved people nor ultimately their rights. But but there were those seeking to use them um, in the cause of liberty, either on one side or the other. <clears throat> Holton goes on then um, to point out that the complaints um, weren't actually uh, about the king or even um, the the denouncement of the monarchy itself. And I thought that was interesting. You know, I it was actually um, Parliament. Uh, nine of of Congress's most pressing grievances were actually about parliamentary statutes. Statutes. They weren't actually about the king. Um, and I think that's interesting. I don't think that that's often pointed out. Uh, we tend to talk about the Declaration of Independence as if you know it just targets the idea of the monarchy and the monarch himself, but actually it was the 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 parliament of uh of Britain at the time with whom the uh the framers and the and the signers of the Declaration of Independence actually were most antagonistic. And so that's a that's a curious conversation to have as well. Reread the Declaration of Independence and see if Holton is right about these things. I I I read it and I was like, oh yeah, I know I think that this that's probably accurate. Um, the Declaration of Independence uh, fell short of its most pressing pur- purpose, um, Holton claims, and that's because the goal in in June of 1776 was actually that France might immediately accept Congress's invitation to an alliance. So the hope was that the French Navy would start intercepting British supply ships that were bound for America, um, and and that France would do so right away. Like this was the uh, that's what the signers of the Declaration of Independence were counting on. They were counting on if they signed this um, on, uh, you know, on July the 4th, um, that then France would immediately begin intercepting British supply ships. And that would mean that uh, the colonists would have, you know, obviously a much greater opportunity um, because the Brits would not be resupplied. Well, um, it took uh, the king of France 18 months to agree to a formal alliance. The first French ships uh, didn't actually enter into the fray until June of 1778, four years later. Anyway, it's an interesting uh, part of the conversation as well. The colonists had to literally like make it on their own um, for for four years without French help. And uh, that's significant. Uh, You know, also just in terms of going forward in the conversations like the United States of America is always fast to respond when allies need help or are under threat. I mean, I hope we're fast. Maybe people don't view it that way. Um, But not everyone was fast to come to uh, the aid or assistance of the early uh, colonists here in America who declared their independence from, uh, from Britain. The last point on this list I found particularly interesting. Abolitionists and feminists actually moved the language of the Declaration of Independence uh, to have a greater focus on human rights, human value. This was um, this was just an interesting part of the conversation that I hadn't known before. Uh, so there were um, there were abolitionists who were engaged in the conversations related to America's independence, um, and there were uh, and there were women who were were asking that there be um, an elevation of the conversation and that it would include um, these these terms that we now hold so dear, so dear, um, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. 
These claims are uh, then highlighted, um, let's see, by Lemuel Hayes. He's a free African-American soldier serving in the Continental Army. Um, He actually drafted an essay called Liberty Further Extended. And in it, he quotes Jefferson's lines that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And by highlighting these claims... Um, he's shifting the focus of the meaning of the Declaration of Independence, maybe from Congress's, um, you know, original point, which was seceding from the power of Great Britain, to this universal Declaration of Human Rights. And that is something that I think in in our um, understanding of the Declaration of Independence is something that then carries forward. It doesn't just carry forward into our life as Americans. It carries forward into our advocacy of freedom for people around the world. I think we are engaged in conversations globally about um, ab- about basic human rights, including religious liberty, because we actually do value. We, we have a nation constructed upon the understanding that all people are created equal endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. And that language um, and then the uplifting of that language and sort of having that be the keystone conversational point from the Declaration of Independence was actually something that was used by and forwarded, elevated by abolitionists and and feminists who um, uh, who really transformed what I think we all understand the Declaration of Independence to ultimately have been about, which and initially was to get France involved. Yeah, which I didn't know. All right, there you go. We're going to uh, take a very brief break. When we come back, I'm going to touch on a question that was asked by a listener. Their question was, what's actually the beginning of the Christian worldview? Um, like, where do I have to go? What's the most basic stone upon which, foundation stone upon which these conversations are built? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. So from time to time, I get a listener question that is like so massive and mammoth that I think to myself, okay, I got to spend some time not only thinking about that, but I have to address it in more than just a minute. So um, I'm going to address a listener question because it's a big one and it's a very basic one. The question was, what's what's actually underneath? What's the beginning? What's the foundation stone um, of the Christian worldview? Like where does the building of the Christian worldview begin? And so um, I've thought about this. I've reflected on it. I've read what other people have said about it. And I, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this. The starting point for all genuine Christian thinking, the starting point for constructing a Christian worldview, a redemptive worldview, a gospel worldview, is the existence of the self-revealed or self-revealing God of the Bible. Like, that's... Uh, you know, there's layers and layers and layers um, above that, but that's the bedrock. That's the foundation stone. Um, that's where the conversation begins. The The foundation of the Christian worldview is this knowledge and acknowledgement of the one true and living God, the fact of God's existence. That's what sets the Christian worldview or the gospel worldview or the redemptive worldview apart from all others. So we must affirm that God is, 
and that our knowledge of God is dependent upon God's gift of divine revelation. It's not just that God is, it's that God has revealed himself. God has made himself known. And so Christian thinking isn't just theism. It's not, you cannot reduce it to theism or even monotheism. Um, because Christian thinking is more than the belief in the existence of a personal God. It's actually a specific personal God, the authentic uh, God, the true God, the God who has revealed himself to us. And where has he done that? Well, that would be uh, in the Bible. And so as soon as we say that uh, the starting point for the Christian worldview is the knowledge of and the acknowledgement of the one true and living God who has made himself known, we then have to say, well, how has God made himself known? And that would then be an acknowledgement um, of our dependence upon the Bible, the importance of affirming the inspiration and truthfulness of the Bible, uh, affirming its inerrancy, its infallibility. Um, It's not just uh, about articulating a high view of Scripture. Um, This is about recognizing that we as believers can have confidence that we know who God is and what God is like and what to expect of him and what he expects of us, because God has revealed it in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. I think there's also um, a conversation to be had here, and now we're building upon the foundation, all right? So we're now building on the foundation. So we have this one true God revealed in the Bible um, who defines his own existence, sets his own terms, rules over creation, um, and that that God is the one true God. Um, I think that, that the recovery of that profound truth would go a long way to elevating the conversations of the day. If we could find a way to return to a foundational conversation about the reality of God, who God is, and how we know that, um, we would spend less time arguing um, about things that are secondary or tertiary. We would find ourselves um, spending time instead talking about the great attributes of God, um, like God's holiness. I mean, just imagine having a conversation at some point uh, about God's holiness or God's total, final, undiluted, unassailable sovereignty. So yesterday we touched on a conversation, or or I think it was yesterday, had a conversation about autonomy versus authority. That's, that could easily be a conversation that is had in the context of a conversation about the reality of the absolute, undiluted, unassailable sovereignty of God. And conversations about human behavior and the choices that we make as human beings and the things that we are choosing to do or not do with our bodies or in our relationships, on and on and on, is ultimately a conversation about God's holiness. If God is holy and God is sovereign and we are his, then we are not sovereign or autonomous, but 
We live in a joyful submission to the authority of the God who not only made us, but has redeemed us and calls us to be what? Holy. But what does holiness look like as people created in the image of the one true God? So I guess I'm hoping that you can see from this how a conversation about uh, the foundation of the Christian worldview, the reality of the one true God who has self-revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, gets us into, or maybe sometimes out of, conversations of the day that seek to um, drag us down into conversations about lesser things. So let's see if we could have conversations about some higher things. All right, uh, that's uh, that's about all we have time for in this hour. Let's take a brief br- brief break and then round out this first hour of Mornings with Carmen on this July the 1st. We'll be right back. Uh, Producer Paul Perot informed me yesterday that this is doghouse repair month. And I think that because he knows that I now have four dogs, he is concerned that I have not recently inspected my dog's outdoor home. And he has raised concern that legislators in many states across the country have passed laws explaining the minimum requirements that dog owners need to provide for their pooches' outdoor living spaces. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, July is National Doghouse Repair Month. Paul, do you have anything to add to this? Uh, I really don't, since mm-hmm. I don't have a dog. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I know you do, and so you know, just just trying to help out here. Yes. So um, there are those who are posting all kinds of things online uh, about um, how you and I need to be uh, caring for or sheltering. Our furry friends, and so, I don't know, there are 15 free do-it-yourself doghouse plans on this particular website that I'm looking at right now. Let me just say this, my dogs are fat and happy. I think that is, uh, yeah, they uh, they have orchards to run around in, and yes, they have little dog houses. I mean, they're actually of adequate size, don't worry, um, to sleep in should they want to get out of the inclement weather. There you go. Lots of water. That's my uh, That's my concern. Another hour up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.